Chapter 96 Al-Alaq The Clinging Form Read in the name of your Lord who created. The first five verses of this chapter inaugurated the Prophet's divine mission and, as such, we must exert all of our effort to understand the wisdom behind the very first words that the Beloved revealed to humanity. The first revelation begins with the words Iqra' to read or recite. Therefore, it can be considered this divine writ's most important message. However, the Prophet was an Ummi, an unlettered person, one not taught by mortals. So what was he commanded to read? This chapter opens by telling the Prophet to read, but in reality it is commanding him to comprehend, to read the book of nature, and to realize that it has an author. By the same token, phenomena are nature's alphabet that, when taken collectively, constitute the book of nature, a text that we can read and a message that we can understand. This message is conveyed by God its creator and author. How is this reading supposed to be done? By using the ism of the Rabb, Lord. Ism does not connote a word here. In order to appreciate this verse's meaning, we first need to analyze how the Quran uses names to impart a message. We give our children what we consider to be beautiful and pleasing names, often without wondering what they mean. However, Every name in the Quran contains a descriptive yet significant meaning. Given this framework, why is the Prophet commanded to read in the name of the Rabb, Lord, Sustainer, or Cherisher? Rabb means an educator or teacher, someone who establishes an order. However, it usually has no clear meaning on its own. The attributes of lordship and leadership are substantiated only when there are subjects, for without them, this quality can have no meaning. The revelation begins with instructing the Prophet to read in the name of his Lord, Rabb, the one who has a relationship with him and the world, and whose will, power, and knowledge is superior to humanity and the world. It is essential to realize that the first quality that the Quran attributes to the Lord is His creative power and creation. The Quran commences with the surrounding natural phenomena to underline that all other debates and arguments are irrelevant. On the contrary, it calls upon us to become aware of the surrounding world, to learn to read the book of creation and marvel, and to wonder if anything that exists could have been created on its own. We must learn to read the trees, mountains, and sky in order to understand what they are saying and what messages they offer, for they are the alphabets of the language of creation. Although lordship is a single reality, its multiple dimensions require us to learn and understand its different aspects. This discourse has answered the question, what aspect of his lordship do we have to be able to read? The answer is, of course, his creation. Which chapter of the book of creation should we read? Naturally, the one about humanity's creation, 
which is the purport of the next verse. Created a human being out of alaq. Exegetes of the Quran have never agreed about the meaning of alaq. Some define it as congealed blood, maybe because it resembles a sperm, whereas others speculate that it indicates dependence and attachment, perhaps because humans are social animals who seek closeness. Some, in light of recent discoveries in science and genetics, say that it refers to spermatozoon, the initial sperm that attaches itself to the womb's walls and feeds upon its blood, similar to how a leech survives by sucking its host's blood. In Arabic, this latter act is also called alaq. But regardless of what meaning is intended, the point is that God created human beings from a lowly substance and then endowed them with intellect, comprehension, perception, and discernment. Read, and your Lord is most generous. Your Lord is Akram, most esteemed, honorable, generous, and bountiful. Once again, it is important to note that Rub, as opposed to Allah, is used in the earliest revealed verses so that humans may gain knowledge, insight, and wisdom about His Lordship. It is human nature to seek support from a reliable Lord, especially since at that time one could hardly survive without belonging to a tribe. It therefore stands to reason that they should seek the one who is the overlord of the whole world and the creator of everything, including themselves. Another of God's attributes is that He is Al-Karim, the extremely generous in comparison to earthly lords, who are often vile, despotic, malicious, egotistical, greedy, stingy, and tyrannical men who levy unreasonable demands upon their subjects. In Arabic culture, being generous, kareem, is considered one of the highest virtues that a person can possess. But why is God described as al-kareem? Who taught by the pen? Is it not amazing that God commands the Prophet, a member of a primitive and largely illiterate society, to read? The first revelation and divine message talks about the blessing of learning by the pen, and it is on this account that he calls himself Al-Karim. Education and learning are important and vital skills now, but were not thought to be so in pre-Islamic Arabia and in many other societies. Imagine how an isolated Amazonian tribe would respond to the gift of a computer something they have never seen nor have any idea of what it can do. Obviously, they would appreciate receiving a gift that is relevant to their daily life. Does it not strike you as odd, then, that the Revelation's first word is read? Are you not astonished that the first word revealed to this unlettered and untaught man living in such a society should be about the pen, learning, and pedagogy? and that God introduces himself through his attribute of teaching. Taught the human being what he did not know. He taught humans the use of pen so they may learn about previously unknown things, reading, lordship, creation, nobility of character, and learning by the use of pen.
The subjects addressed in these verses are the most fundamental and important issues for humanity. In modern times, humanity is the cornerstone of all debates and discussion. In ancient times, however, the focus was on one's tribal affiliation and its leader, who was revered as its lord. These eternal words address matters that affect the entire family of humanity for all times. Does this not prove that the author of these words transcends all temporal and geographical limitations? How could the author of the Quran be a human being, for all humans are limited by the horizon of time and space? God chose these words to introduce himself to an unlettered person in a cave on Mount Hira. He could have told the Prophet that he is the God who gifted humanity with dates camels and palm trees, and yet he chose to speak to his prophet of knowledge, the pen, education, and noble character before anything else. Scholars who think that the Quran is the prophet's word should reflect upon this discourse and try to understand how the mind of an unlettered and untaught person living in such a society could even perceive of such subjects. Not at all. It is not what he surmises. Truly, human being transgresses. Humanity is unaware of its origin and creator. The particle inna before insan, human, and la before yatra, transgress, emphasizes that the transgressor and rebel is humanity, who was created by God and endowed with the ability to learn. The root ta, ra, ya connotes a transgression of the bounds, just like the water of a river that surges over its banks. When he imagines he is self-sufficient and his possessions make him secure. This verse says imagines, as opposed to when he finds himself self-sufficient, for a very clear reason. In times of financial prosperity, People may imagine themselves to be independent and thus see no reason to establish a relationship with others, with God or with religion. Humans tend to remember God only when they are confronted with difficulties, hardships and crises. The majority of exegetes opine that this verse means that humans tend to transgress when they feel themselves to be self-sufficient, which they define in terms of wealth and power. However, in my opinion, in modern times this supposition occurs when people acquire knowledge. Therefore, their own technical know-how as well as their access to more knowledge is what makes them transgress. The 19th century inaugurated the era of scientism, which empowered humans to feel self-sufficient and independent. Today, the majority of people, especially those living in more advanced societies, assume that science can resolve all of life's obstacles. Believing that reason has replaced God and that scientism has rendered religion obsolete, they pay excessive deference to science on the grounds that only reason should guide their affairs. They claim that God, religion, and other such matters belong to ancient times when people had no idea of the linkage between cause and effect. When people resorted to their own ideas, which are now called mythology and superstition, 
to explain that which they could not understand. As a result, they created one or more imaginary deities and sought to gain their favor by placating them in various ways. But today, now that we supposedly have enough knowledge, or at least are on the verge of attaining such knowledge to solve all of our problems, we feel that we no longer need God. This is why the verse reminds us that self-sufficient people become the center of their own reality and thus reject any other authority. For everything returns to your Lord. What does this oft-repeated sentence really mean? It means humans are part of the universal movement. If a drop of water in a river were to decide to separate itself from the river and remain on its banks, the sun would quickly cause it to evaporate. A drop can sustain its water-based characteristics while it remains in the river. This drop descends as rain at a specific point in time, but from where does the water in the sky come? Water evaporated primarily from the ocean's surface turns into clouds and then rain, which pours down on the land and then returns, once again, to the oceans. This is a closed-loop cycle. In reality, all phenomena are rotating and returning to God. In modern scientific terms, the Big Bang Theory is continuously moving the universe toward the point of recurrence, meaning that it is expanding incessantly. Quran chapter 21 verse 104 refers to this process through the metaphor of using a scroll. In ancient times, a monarch's decrees were inscribed on scrolls that would be unrolled, read, and then rolled up again. Likewise, the scroll of the sky, now opened and read, will be rolled up and put away. New galaxies are born and die every day. This cycle constantly repeats itself, and yet some people imagine that they can separate themselves from it. But if they somehow managed to achieve this impossible feat, where would they go? Is there a different world with a different god somewhere else? The whole universe is moving synergistically toward the one Lord. Some people may erroneously assume that we are on a path that has God as its final destination. However, the truth is that we are on a path toward spiritual perfection or toward God, but we will never reach Him because one cannot stop at a specific place or a certain level, nor can one ever leave this eternal movement. Did you see the one who prevents? They oppose God-worship because it conflicts with and contradicts idol-worship, past power-brokers vehemently opposed any propagation of Islam, fearing that it would liberate their society from the yoke of slavery and annihilate despotic systems. Tyrannical governments have always resorted to brainwashing their subjects, regardless of the era in which they live, to keep them ignorant. Our devotee from praying or turning toward me. The verb sallah means to turn toward God, one aspect of which is the daily prayers. It is in this context that the latter is linked with rising up, iqama. The opposite of salla is tawalla, to turn one's back upon.
Abd is a person who has surrendered to and obeys God. Not only do despots, tyrants, and transgressors reject his lordship, but they also do their best to persuade others not to turn toward him, because this threatens the financial, political, and other privileges enjoyed by such governments' inner circle and upper echelons. Did you see, or what would you do, if he was rightly guided? The phrase araita means, so what are you saying? Or what would you do? if, instead of transgressing, the person were to follow the straight path, or enjoin reverence and piety, or if one were to admonish others to embrace taqwa instead of turning them away from their creator. Did you see, or what would you do, given that he denies the truth and turns away from it? These verses enumerate some of the qualities that humans possess. All of us have observed God-conscious people who are on the path to salvation and those who deny and reject the guidance. Does he not know that God sees? Do these people not comprehend that they are part of the whole, part of God's kingdom? Do they not realize that turning their back on him does not cause them to vanish or exit his dominion? Not at all. If he does not stop, we will drag him by his forehead or forelock. People may think that they can get away with their misdeeds. However, this is a clear impossibility. Some exegetes have interpreted Nasia, the focal point of this verse, as conveying a sense of humiliation and denigration for being dragged by the forelock. Furthermore, we usually grab the hand, as opposed to the forehead, of the person we want to drag somewhere. So what exactly does this word mean? Nasia is derived from the root nas, and among other things can be defined as immobilizing a person by pulling one's forelock. The prefrontal cortex, the front part of the frontal lobe behind the forehead, plays a key role in formulating a person's personality. There is an integral link between it and one's ability to distinguish between right and wrong actions. Sins gradually obfuscate a person's mind, change the train of one's thoughts, and eventually seize control of the prefrontal cortex. Interestingly, he realized that this word is not limited to the forehead. Here, it implies that a person's character is becoming ugly, as opposed to God's grabbing the person's forelock. The Quran also uses we to denote that our actions have repercussions in his system. Those who suppose that they are free to do as they wish and will face no consequences are mistaken, because he is Al-Kareem. Maybe they are under the illusion that the Quranic imperative of God holding us accountable for our misdeeds has no basis or foundation in reality. The Quran uses allegorical language to inform each person that the mirror of one's being can become so tarnished and dust-covered that one's nasiya, character, housed in the cortex where all of its special traits are developed, will one day be unable to comprehend and accept reality. A lying, sinning forehead. This is the forehead 
thought process that continuously lies and sins. Indulging in such behavior eventually begins to affect one's character, mind, and decision-making skills to such a degree that one becomes deluded and divorced from reality, and thus unable to perceive the truth. Then, let him call his comrades. Nadia denotes an ardent friend, companion, one who is sympathetic and shares your world view. Can anyone save a person whose entire being is submerged in evil? If cancer has metastasized throughout a patient's body, is any cure possible? The point stressed here is that no one can help such a person or alter the destiny one has forged for oneself. We will call the guards of hell. We will call on those forces that plague humans with misery. Although we can interpret this verse in various ways, in every case the point is that our actions have either positive or negative consequences, depending upon what they were. Not at all. It is not as if you can reconcile with him. Do not obey him, but prostrate so that you draw near to him. This chapter's final verse offers the Prophet three messages. 1. The phrase, Do not follow him, لا تطعه, does not command the Prophet to fight, punish, suppress, or kill Abu Jahl. Instead, it advises him to ignore this person. Abu Jahl is free to choose whatever path he desires. However, the Prophet's path should not merge with the transgressor's path. Prostrate, usjud, denotes prostrating during the ritual prayers. The Quran frequently highlights that everything in creation prostrates to God. When God commanded the angels to do so before Adam, he did not mean this literally because angels do not have a forehead. Therefore, the connotation of sajda here is to adjust oneself so that one can be in harmony with and serve his system. Thus, this commandment means that the Prophet is to turn away from his opponents and orient himself toward God by joining and serving his system. What would happen were he to obey this order? Draw near, iqtarib, to God, for those who oppose you are rebellious and have gone astray. Surrender to God and stay on the path so that you may be guided to the eternal truth. To sum up this discussion with a reminder of the five subjects addressed by this chapter, reading, lordship, creation, nobility of character, and learning by the use of the pen, all of these ideas are foreign to and in complete contrast to the needs of the Arabian society of that time. If the Prophet had been seeking power and leadership, then he would have addressed such relevant issues as his people's ongoing tribal wars or social challenges. Verses 1 to 5, the first verses to be revealed, clearly show that they are far more than mere sentimental statements. Rather, they are directed toward future generations. <laughs>